As you're grabbing your seat, how about you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We'll be in verses 4 through 12 this morning. It truly is a privilege to be able to come and worship God together in one place, especially when you consider the times that we're in and consider the context and how there are many states that are asking churches to shut their doors on Sunday mornings. And so it's a blessing, and we consider it a blessing. Uh, to be able to be here uh, this morning in the flesh. Um, now, uh, with that, I, I do have a couple of reminders, and I want you to know I'm not calling anybody out specifically, um, only in that uh, I had decided that I was going to say this even before anybody walked in the building. So if you think I'm picking on you, I promise that I'm not. Um, understand that there are certain people that come here under the guise that this is a safe place for them uh, and that they feel comfortable. And so a reminder to you that uh, when you walk in the building, we do ask that you put a mask on uh, and you keep it on for the duration of the service. Um, our elders have volunteered to address it with anybody that doesn't have a mask on, and they have done so. And we want to be as gracious as we can. We love you, and we know that you love us. And uh, we're, we're trying to do the best that we can uh, through this pandemic. And if you're sitting here saying, I just don't want to wear a mask, I get it. I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to eat my vegetables. Uh, but my wife still makes me eat vegetables from time to time. So um, please wear the mask. And a second reminder, as you come into the room, you'll notice these colored dots and the ushers are holding, uh, a, 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 I don't even know what you call it, a guide for how many can, people can send the, the, the dots. I want to remind you that these are merely guidelines. These are merely suggestions. Uh, we don't want to give you any unnecessary anxiety as you walk into the room. Uh, just stay six feet apart from other people. You'll do just fine. Uh, but don't think you're not going to get in trouble if you're two people sitting in a three people spot. Uh, we just want to, once again, help you the best of our ability. And so um, we're doing our best, and uh, we appreciate you guys and uh, everything you've done to support FAC uh, as a church body uh, as we continue to walk through this pandemic together. So uh, with that, let's turn to Acts 13. Let's look at verses 4 through 12 together, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the, hands of the, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, I ask that your spirit would communicate with us now. Your word is a light. 
and it shines in the dark places. And so, Father, would your word shine in the dark places of our hearts so that we may know you and glorify you. Engage our minds for the next several minutes so that our hearts may be pierced by the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are just joining us uh, here at FAC, um, we have been traveling through the book of Acts together since the beginning of January. Uh, We're walking through it together to see uh, and witness the unstoppable nature of the gospel and, and to see really how we as a church can sort of jump on this train that's already moving full steam ahead. We want to be a missional church, a church that is serious about communicating the message of Jesus, the message that we are sinners in need of salvation, and that salvation only comes through one straight path, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what we want to communicate. The primary purpose of Acts uh, is to chronicle the expansion of that message, the message of Jesus, the expansion of that message outward. Very early on in our time in Acts, I uh, explained how this book is kind of like when you throw a giant rock into a still and calm lake. Right? When you, when you throw the rock in, the rock hits the water, it crashes into the water and creates this event, this disruption, uh, to the rest of the lake. And you can just sit there and watch the waves and the ripples go out from, from this event and affect the, the rest of the water. The waves expand outward. In the same way, when Jesus died and rose again, it was a seismic event. It was an earth-shaking event, literally. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake. And when Jesus died, people uh, were, dead people were walking out of their tombs. And when Jesus died, darkness uh, covered the earth. And then three days later, this guy who's supposed to be dead in the tomb starts appearing to hundreds of people. So of course, this is going to cause a stir. This is going to create some waves. It's like somebody took a giant boulder and threw it straight down in the middle of Jerusalem. And we've traveled through Acts. As we've traveled through Acts, we've seen the waves that this has caused. We've seen the message of a risen Savior expand outward into the rest of the world. And this morning, as we begin looking at Saul's first official and documented mission, uh, missionary journey, we will come to find that the gospel message of Jesus travels to all kinds of people in all kinds of different places, but also comes up against all kinds of resistance. And so let's take a look at it together. And a quick note, let's remind ourselves of who's participating in this missionary journey. All right, first we have Barnabas, uh, who's become somewhat of a recurring character throughout Acts. We met him back in Acts chapter 4, where he sold a field right, that belonged to him and took the proceeds and gave it to the apostles so that the apostles could meet the needs of those that they saw fit, those that were less fortunate. Barnabas, his, his name literally means son of encouragement. And we saw that play out back in Acts chapter 9. 
right? When, when Barnabas went to the apostles on behalf of Saul. If you recall, Saul was a wicked man. He sought out to persecute believers. He was on a road to Damascus where he was going to arrest believers. And on that road, Jesus got a hold of his heart. He saved Saul. And so many years later, when Saul came to Jerusalem for the first time after being a believer, he wanted to meet the apostles, and the apostles were very hesitant. Right? They, they remembered Saul's reputation, and they were nervous. But then you have Barnabas the son of encouragement that went to the apostles, specifically Peter and James, on behalf of Saul and said, hey, this guy's legit. His conversion is real. And he urged them to meet with Saul, and they did. What's important to note about Barnabas in this passage as it pertains to him is that Barnabas is from Cyprus, which is the destination uh, of the passage this morning. They start off their journey in some familiar territory. This may have been strategically intentional. So we've got Barnabas. We also have um, Saul, as I mentioned earlier, leading this missionary journey. Uh, we, we've already visited with Saul in depth to this point in Acts, and he does become a prominent character throughout the rest of the book, and so we're going to see a lot more of Saul. Uh, but this passage does offer up a, some new detail about Saul that we didn't know before. But take a look at down in, in verse 9. Uh, we read right at the beginning there that Saul, who was also called Paul, now, a quick side note about this. There seems to be a common misconception uh, that when Saul converted uh, to Christianity, when Saul converted, Jesus changed his name to Paul. It's a misunderstanding that Saul was his name before he came to know Christ, and then he came to know Christ, and now his name is Paul after he came to know Christ. Now, there are some instances, I can see the confusion, because there are instances in Scripture where God changes somebody's name. It actually happened four times throughout the Bible. This is not one of those four times, however. From here on out, as we travel through Acts, Saul will mostly be referred to as Paul, and so the timing does seem a little odd because this is all post conversion, but we have to understand that this was not brought about because he became a Christian. It's actually a literary device that Luke intentionally uses. It's a literary change in how he communicates. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is deliberate in referring to him as Paul from here on out in order to show that the message of Jesus is expanding to a non-Jewish world. So what, what exactly is going on here? You see, the name Saul is a Jewish name. And Saul would have used it in Jewish context. And every time we've read about him to this point, it's been in the Jewish context. But the name Paul is actually the Roman version of his name, Saul. And now that he's entering Roman Gentile, a Roman Gentile world, or in other words, a non-Jewish context, he begins to use his Roman name. It would be like, if you will, if I were doing ministry in a setting that speaks Spanish, 
in order to, what Paul has written, be all things to all people, I might ask them not to refer to me as my English name, Michael, but rather, how about you call me Miguel? This is what Paul and Saul is doing. Saul and Paul are one in the same. And so we have Barnabas. We have Saul, who is called Paul. Uh, but we also have a third person on this journey that seems to be kind of out of nowhere. We're, we're told in verse 5 that they had John to assist them. Another name for John is John Mark. Back in Acts 12 is when we were introduced to John Mark. In that chapter, we went through how Peter was released by an angel from prison. And Peter retreated to a house that was hosting a church in Jerusalem that was owned by a wealthy woman named Mary. And we are told that Mary was the mother of John Mark. And then as uh, Barnabas and Saul returned to Antioch from Jerusalem, uh, John Mark actually accompanies them back to Antioch. And so um, you could imagine this is probably a younger fellow that's just kind of tagging along for some time now, and he's serving as an assistant to Barnabas and Saul. In some sense, he might be an understudy or an apprentice, and he will actually come into play later in the story, as we'll find. Um, a side note that you might find interesting about John Mark is that most scholars believe uh, that he is the one that will go to write on later in life the gospel of Mark. That's him right there, John Mark. And so we have Barnabas, we have Saul, and we have John Mark. Uh, they, they leave Antioch, right? They, they go into the battlefield. The Holy Spirit uh, sends them out in verse 4 to Seleucia, which is a port town about 16 miles west of Antioch. And if you're, uh, if you're a visual learner, I actually have a map here that you can follow along with. Uh, this will help you um, know kind of visually what this looked like, right? Uh, they, they go to Seleucia, and then they set sail to Cyprus, which is about 60 miles away, and they land in the northeastern town of Salamis, and it's here that we read that they began proclaiming the good news of Jesus in the synagogues to the Jewish people. Right? They always seem to start with the Jewish people. Now, there may be a practical reason for this, but we'll actually find out in a week or so that there's also a theological reason why they always started with the Jews. And we get this idea from the text that, that the three of them are just methodically going through the synagogues uh, across the island. They're going from synagogue to synagogue until they reach uh, Paphos in the southwest corner. Now, Paphos is the capital city of Cyprus. And we need a little bit more context and detail about Cyprus in order to understand the relations and what's happening next. So bear with me. Um, once again, we are in Roman territory at this point. And Cyprus is known as a senatorial province of Rome. There were these provinces in Rome that were peaceful and they were civilized and they didn't need uh, an imperial presence of Roman troops. Essentially, Cyprus didn't have military rule like many Roman provinces like Judea because Rome didn't feel the need for it. And, and this province of, of Cyprus was governed by what was called a proconsul. 
Uh, think of this role as you would uh, a governor, right? The, the proconsul, he was appointed to uh, govern this province by the Roman Senate, and he was charged essentially with keeping the peace on the island. His whole role is just keep everything at bay, right? Something else to note in this context is that there was no such thing as separation of church and state in that time and culture. Right? Everything from commerce to religion to, to government overlapped, emerged. It was all intertwined. In Roman culture, uh, it would accept a whole pantheon of gods. And even more so, the emperor himself, Caesar, claimed divinity and required people to worship him as a god. The Christians called it the imperial cult. And so if you were in Rome or a Roman province, your government leaders were your gods. And you had to declare Caesar as Lord. Now, there was an exception to this rule, and the exception, believe it or not, was Judaism. For the most part, the Romans left the the Jews alone. Because to the Romans, Judaism was known as this kind of archaic religion that only served one God and They were essentially grandfathered in to the culture, into Roman culture, and the Romans allowed them to still worship their one and only God. So so this is the intertangled mess that you have in this culture at the time. There's just like this hodgepodge, if you will, of religion and government. And so as Barnabas and Saul and John Mark begin going from synagogue to synagogue, it, it attracts rightfully so the attention of the proconsul, who's named Sergius Paulus. In a very real sense, Sergius Paulus may be wondering, what are these guys up to? Are they going to stir up some trouble? What are their intentions here? And so he summons them in verse 7. But you'll notice in the text that he doesn't summon them merely just to take care of business and do his job. No, why does he summon Barnabas and Saul? Because he sought to hear the word of God. Perhaps Sergius doesn't quite understand why he's feeling this. But as Barnabas and Saul go from each synagogue, word travels to Sergius that these men are proclaiming God's word. And Sergius just has to know what God is saying. You see, God in this moment is drawing Sergius to himself through the proclamation of his word. The work of God is coming through the word of God being proclaimed. And we just get this picture of, of, of God sort of wooing Sergius. This is kind of that still small voice whispering in his ear, Sergius, Sergius. God captivates the proconsul's mind. Sergius hears that still small voice calling on him. And he might be thinking, I don't understand yet, but I have to try. There's this voice in my head that I just can't get out that's pursuing me and I have to look into it. And so he summons Barnabas and Paul so that he may hear the word of God. 
And what I love about this passage is that Luke is very intentional to tell us that Sergius Paulus is a man of intelligence. Why on earth would this be in here? Luke seems to throw this random detail in here, but we know that nothing is random or out of place in God's word. Every single word in scripture is intricately placed for a purpose. You see, in our culture, many people pit intelligence and and faith against each other. You've probably heard this. I have heard this uh, before. uh, The claim that to be a believer means you, quote, have to check your brain at the door. They say that it's intellectual suicide to believe scripture. I've heard this one too, that this book is nothing but a bunch of fairy tales for simpletons. It's only for the gullible and stupid enough to believe them. I've heard every single one of those from non-believers. Those who claim intellectual superiority seem to be the most combatant towards Jesus, which in my opinion is rather ironic because Christianity is rooted in historical truth. You see, while other religions are dependent on subjective teaching, Christianity is dependent on objective events. And if Christianity is dependent on objective events, then we should be able to intellectually examine the evidence of whether or not those events actually happened. And as you put an honest effort into examining the evidence of Scripture, you will come to find that you don't need to take some gargantuan, unintelligible leap of faith. No, it's actually quite the opposite. As you come to grips with the evidence that supports a risen Jesus, you'll find that the massive blind leap of faith really turns into a well-informed baby step. Yes, Christianity takes a certain step of faith, but so do all other belief systems that claim truth. However, we can logically and intelligently examine the evidence and it gets us pretty close. Take a look at this quote from Norm Geisler, who is a Christian professor who held his doctorate in philosophy. He writes that despite its apparent persuasiveness, the claim that religion is simply a matter of faith is nothing more than a modern myth. It's just not true. While religion certainly requires faith, religion is not only about faith. Facts are also central to all religions because all religious worldviews, including atheism, make truth claims. And many of those truth claims can be evaluated through scientific and historical investigation. Contrary to popular opinion, Christians are not supposed to just have faith. 
And so as you tell your unbelieving friends and family about Jesus, I would appreciate it if you just purge that terminology from your, purge that phrase from your terminology, that you just need to have faith. Please, never use that when you're telling your friends and family about Jesus. Because nothing sounds more unintelligent and naive and ignorant than saying you just have to have faith. Especially when we have mountains of evidence at our disposal. You might be sitting here and say, I've said that before. I said it this weekend. I'm, I'm there too. I have said it before. But as I, as I look at the mountains of evidence, I realize we don't need to say that. It doesn't need to be in our arsenal. You see, do you know what it sounds like when we tell unbelievers to just have faith? When an unbeliever hears that, they assume one of two things. One, either the evidence isn't there, or two, we're too lazy and ignorant to know the evidence. There's not much that discredits our claims more than when we tell people to just have faith. We're better than that. Let me tell you, the evidence is there. And so it's on us to research and to know it like we know our favorite order and our favorite restaurant. In fact, this is what scripture commands us to do. We are commanded to know what we believe and why we believe it. Take a look at 1 Peter 3.15. Peter writes, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. How? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are commanded to have a defense when someone asks why we believe. This is how we honor Christ, by giving a defense. How about 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5? Right? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Just as an army attacks and destroys the stronghold of its adversary, we are called to attack and destroy any argument or opinion that comes up against the Christian faith to dismantle it. And how do you suppose we do that? Not with weapons of flesh, but with weapons of the mind. With the weapon of intelligence. We even fulfill part of the greatest commandment with our intelligence. According to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Intelligence and faith are not mutually exclusive. And we see that in Acts 13, 7, where Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, sought to hear the word of God. This bright, intelligent, powerful man has this innate need and desire in his heart to know the ultimate source of truth, God Almighty. Now, unfortunately, 
the evil forces of the world were not ready to roll over so that Sergius could hear the gospel. No, they are going down with a fight. Because there's another man who's probably a part of the proconsul's entourage named Bar-Jesus, or another name given Elamas. He's identified as a Jewish false prophet who practiced magic or sorcery, and he opposes Barnabas and Saul. It was common for government officials to have people like Elamas in their cabinet, right? because these magicians' uh, work typically involved practices that included formulas and charms and incantations that they would use to discern direction, right? And they would, and they would actually advise government officials that of, of their findings based on these incantations or charms uh, or the aligning of the stars. This is the decision that you should make. And so there's a chance that Elamas opposes Barnabas and Saul out of fear of losing his own position of influence. And so we get this picture of Sergius being wooed by God Almighty, being drawn to to Jesus. And then all of a sudden, as Sergius is kind of uh, hearing this voice and and drawn to it, all of a sudden, Elimas steps in and says, hey, hold up. You, you don't, you don't want anything to do with them. He deliberately tries to turn Sergius Paulus's attention away. As I mentioned before, sometimes in the Christian faith, there can be intellectual roadblocks that distract us or keep us from the voice of God. But there are also spiritual roadblocks as well. You see, in this situation, Even though Elimas is probably functioning in his own mind with selfish motives, he's in it for himself. What he's really functioning is as a spiritual satanic force that is trying to regain the attention of the proconsul and hopes to turn him away from God's voice. Elimas might not even realize what he's doing, but he is taking part in distracting him in spiritual warfare. This is a battle for this man's soul. And I still believe that this happens today. As God draws us, there are many outside forces that would do anything to block out his voice. And they're not necessarily mystical, right? They may not be mystical in nature, There are things on Facebook that are distracting you from God's voice. There are things in the news that is spiritually distracting you from hearing God's voice. There are people in your life that are distracting you from God's voice. There are people that you listen to and that we watch and that we read that that put on the guise that they are Christian leaders and they are distracting you from God's voice. These distractions can sidetrack us. This is spiritual warfare at its finest. Let's just call it what it is. Saul of course, recognizes this. He sees it for what it is. 
He, he sees beyond Elimas uh, what, he's, what he's trying to do here, and he decides to intervene. And you'll notice in verse 9 that before Saul even speaks a single word, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit, which is important because we'll see that this is a pretty stern rebuke. This type of language, frankly, is frowned upon these days in our culture of tolerance. But this language that Saul uses, these are not empty words, but rather spirit-filled words. He does not say these things from the flesh. He does not say these things. uh, This wasn't a moment of irritated weakness for Saul, but rather a moment of power from the Holy Spirit. So let's break it down. What does Saul say to this man, Elimas, in the power of the Spirit? First, he says, you son of a devil. We can't really get away with that in our time, can we? Calling people son of a devil. There's a play on words here because Elimas' other name, Bar-Jesus, literally means son of Jesus. Saul is saying, you're not a child of Jesus. You're the spawn of Satan himself. You're son of a devil. You, You think you speak on behalf of God as if you were one of his own? No, God is righteous. And you're an enemy of righteousness. And so Saul goes on to tell Elimas that he's full of all deceit and villainy. Elimas, everything you do is a lie and it's for selfish gain. That word villainy uh, simply means unscrupulousness, right? It usually refers to someone who seeks to gain through trickery, doesn't have very high moral standards. And so uh, Saul essentially tells Elimas, you have no standards. You're nothing but a con artist. You're a con man who's hiding behind your cowardly lies. And then Saul finally asks him a question. Elimas, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? You see, God has a plan. God has a path and it leads straight to him. And Elimas is taking that path and making it crooked. He is distorting the path to God. He claims to be a prophet, and so he claims to speak on behalf of God, but he is taking God's perfect path, and he is breaking it. He is distorting it. He is pointing it somewhere else. Once again, this still happens all the time. Right? We get people all the time, did God really say that? God couldn't have meant that, right? When, when he, he said that. When someone challenges God's word or changes God's word, they are distorting the truth. They are making crooked a straight path to God. Elimas's ways go against God's plan and perverts the truth of his word. And Saul is exposing Elimas for who he really is. A satanic deceiver who opposes God's truth. How Saul reacts in the spirit, mind you, to Elimas should give us an idea of how serious false teaching is and how serious false teachers are. 
how important it is to come up against and rebuke those who are deliberately trying to pull people away from God with false teaching. And if you think Saul comes on too strong because he should be more tolerant of Elimas, consider what Jesus said in Matthew 18. He's talking to his disciples about children. And he says, hey, whoever causes one of these little ones uh, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus' own words. This is how serious false teaching is in the forces that come up against the gospel message. We need to understand the dangers of false teaching. We need to be able to identify false teaching and take an aggressive stand against it. Think about it like this. If I were to see my child being kidnapped, I wouldn't enter into a discussion with the kidnapper and politely ask him to stop. I wouldn't stand there and say, well, I wish you would reconsider The actions that you're taking, can you please uh, release my child? No, I would take decisive and urgent action. And if we're willing to take such action in situations that jeopardize our physical well-being and health, we must also do the same spiritually. As one commentator writes, one who loves humanity will not stand by when he or she sees the internal salvation of a person for whom Christ died, jeopardized through the deception of a false teacher. This is why we must call out false teaching, false teaching for what it is. Because it's not just incorrect doctrine. It's not just incorrect thinking. It's not just a, a battle of intelligence. It is leading people astray. It is leading a flock of sheep off of a cliff because they're not following a straight path. They're following a crooked path. And so for the sake of protecting many, we take on the one. This is why we have to be on our guard about what we read, about what we watch, about what we listen to, because it's dangerous It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous for your kids. It's dangerous for those around you. Saul recognizes the danger, and so he takes action and essentially finishes by placing a curse on Elimas. The hand of the Lord, Elimas, is on you, and this hand of the Lord typically represents power. And Elimas goes temporarily blind. This is symbolic. As the deceiver goes blind physically, the recipient of the gospel receives sight. He sees. One commentator says, darkness of mind leads to darkness of sight. But Sergius Paulus heard the word of God and was astonished. He was drawn to the name of Jesus and he believed. I wonder if there would be anyone here today listening, saying, I feel drawn by Jesus in his word. And perhaps there is a spiritual battle going on in your mind this very second. 
that you don't even realize is happening. If that would be you, would you go to God the Father and say, Lord, lift the blinders from my eyes. Save me from the darkness of this world and the darkness of my sin. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, that there is absolute truth in this world and that you are the author of all absolute truth. Lord, we know and recognize that people are coming up against that truth, whether intentionally or not, Father. So we pray that we would be equipped to know and to give a defense for why we believe in the hope that we believe in. I pray that we could be patient and gracious and kind, yet stern and firm in the truth of the gospel. I thank you, Father, for your word. And in your holy name I pray, amen.